Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What's the first brand you remember making an impact on you as a little boy growing up? J&B, which for many that really? don't know, is a whiskey brand. This will be a good story. But yeah, I hope you're older than three or four at the time. I was probably, you know, seven or eight. And part of learning about business was I would go into work with my dad, who worked in Manhattan. And it was right around the holidays. And there was this billboard and it said, Ingle L's, Ingle L's. What would the holidays be without J&B? I mean, talk about great good, ad, great copywriting, right? And good ad, yeah. but it's like, wow, it was witty. It pulled you in. Obviously, I'm a kid. I don't drink whiskey, but like I saw the power in that and got me to take notice. And I think some of the best marketing is get you to stop and pay attention and then deliver their message. And obviously, J&B, a whiskey brand, is a big part of the holidays and holiday parties, but they brought you in with something else. So that was my first brand. And I'm sure there's toys and Cabbage Patch Kids and other things, but when you ask me about marketing, it's burned in my head. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is Harris Bieber, the chief marketing officer of Waze. You know, that crowdsourced fun navigation app that has gotten so many of us out of trouble on the road. Waze was founded in Israel in 2009 and acquired by Google in 2013. Today, Waze is a platform that empowers communities to contribute road data, edit Waze maps, and carpool to improve the way we all move around the world. Waze currently has about 150 million users. It is in 56 languages. My guest Harris is in his third CMO role. He worked five years as CMO at the video platform Vimeo, and before that, he was CMO of vitamin company Nature's Bounty DTC Business. Harris has also worked at 1-800-Flowers, David's Cookies, Shutterfly, and Amazon. He has his undergrad degree and MBA from Binghamton University. This is my conversation with a guy who just never, ever gets stuck in traffic, Harris Bieber. Welcome, finally, to the CMO Podcast, Harris. You have worked in flowers, cookies, pictures and memories, and now travel and transportation. Have you ever thought about being a wedding planner? <laughs> I have not. I do love weddings, though. I am the crier in my family out of my wife and I, so I do love weddings, but I have never thought about being a planner. Well, you've had such an amazing career. I'm just thinking, I, I would consider that after you sort of moved to your next chapter, you'd done the CMO stuff. I think you'd be a really good wedding planner. I do have two sons, so you never know. Maybe there's <laughs> right. children and grandchildren, hopefully in the future, one day. Now, this career path you have been on, it just seems from the outside filled with so many interesting, diverse experiences, great successes, lots of different interesting companies you worked in. I'd just like to know, it all looks like up, up, up. Have there been any significant setbacks in this very interesting career of yours? And if so, how did you manage it? There's been many. 
Okay. From and I think every you can just pick one or two. We all uh, have many, right? But we talk about the successes a lot. We don't often talk about the setbacks, and it's so rich with learning. Two is starting my own company had many ups, but also many downs. One being trying to raise funds to continue uh, in 2007, 2008. So right at the start of a, a financial implosion in the world and everything we had done with the business was right. Uh, it was two guys in not one basement, but many basements. We were vagabonds for a year uh, borrowing space. And we did, I think, 800,000 in our first year in business. But we both had families and we needed a salary and we needed to build the company to the next level. And we had, I think, not one, but three different term sheets that fell through. And it came to a really tough inflection point of, do you continue to build on something that has seen traction, has had a lot of success that you care deeply about, or do you have to know when to, to cut bait? And we made, we found a little bit in between. We found one of our vendors at the time was really eager to have us come grow his business. So it was a win in that it gave us a soft landing and he brought us in to run his direct-to-consumer business. Uh, so it gave us a safe landing in a very difficult time. But it was also a failure as you don't go into business to, to go get a job, right? You do it to build your own thing. Yeah. What was the startup, Harris? And were you doing this full-time or it wasn't a side hustle? It was full-time. It was full-time for three years. So we, wow. we were at on fumes in a runway, uh, even though we had success, and it was called Giftback, and it was the first of its kind e-commerce company where 10% of your purchase could go back to a charity of your choice. So over mm. 500 charities, you selected the charity, where up until that point, you know, there was red iPads and pink Tic Tacs, which was one product, one cause, but we believed that there was a way to combine your everyday purchases with giving back to causes that the consumer believed in, uh, and it really resonated. We partnered with 500 charities. We got traction. Uh, but ultimately, we needed to scale. And there was that, that decision point that was really tough for us. What do you think stalled it? I mean, as you look back on it, is there something you could have done differently? Or do you think it was just maybe too early for its time? The technology qu quite wasn't where it could be? I think we stalled it. There's mm. two things about we stalling it. One, we made the decision. We were two, two partners that when we were raising funds, we both went to every fundraising meeting, we were both all in. And, you know, I think a boss once told me, if you ever want to throw your competitor off their game, just tell them you want to buy them. And mm -hmm. we spent so much time raising funds because I said, as soon as we get that big check, then we could do everything. And everything that made us successful to that point, we stopped in pursuit of getting the check. And that really kind of derailed the momentum that we had in the business. And two, uh, to support ourselves, we both came from a partnerships world, corporate at 1-800-Flowers. We did corporate gifting, did big deals. And to pay the bills, we leaned into doing some of those larger corporate deals that were probably less true to our brand mission of being a consumer business supporting nonprofits. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we did it because we needed to put food on the table, so to speak. But also, it wasn't in service of our broader company mission. And doing that ultimately didn't validate the business model or help it scale. Now, your most recent job was Vimeo and the video platform, and you were there five years, so quite a long time. And you were there as the company went public in 2021. So tell us what that was like. What, was it an enjoyable process? Was it a, a, a learning, a learning rich process? I mean, you had to be a CMO while you were taking a company public. Not too many people do that. The answer is yes. <laughs> it was enjoyable. It was a learning process. 
It was stressful. There's so much hard work that went into that. And by the way, a lot of luck that had to go right. We were incredibly fortunate to benefit from some of the trends that the pandemic had surfaced in terms of video went from a nice to have to a necessity Mm -hmm. pretty much overnight. And luck with intention is how I would say, because we were building for a future that we all saw. We saw it three years in the future and it happened in three months, but we were ready uh, to serve a real need in the market. But that came with an immense amount of uh, stress and really servicing that need that scaled, you know, three years worth of demand in three months is a lot to take on as a business. And we had to adapt and doing that while you're taking it ready to go public and making sure that you're in a place to go public, right, and be, be secure was not easy, but I would not have traded for the world, right? I, I learned more in the last five years than in the previous 15. Hmm. What was it about that five years? Was it the space you were in, the team you were with? Yourself as a leader kind of evolving because the your scope, the scope, I think it was your first CMO job, right? Uh, it was my second CMO job. Okay. Okay. But uh, it was a lot of those things. One, it was by far the most collaborative leadership team I had ever worked on up until that point. And because everyone cared so deeply about the business and they cared about getting it right, not being it right. So we had intense debates, arguments. But no one took it personally because it was about the outcome. What is right for the business? And we all wore our operator's hat first and our functional leader's hat second. And that was really unique. There was not ego in the room. There was such a deep passion. And every one of the leaders, every single one of them lived in the details, right? So it wasn't that you had people underneath you. We knew the business in and out. And that because of that, I knew every part of the business. I knew our roadmap engineering. I was deep in the financial numbers and also wore my functional hat of how do you grow and scale a community from 80 million to 270 million users, right? Yeah. I heard a, one of my recent podcast guests, I was talking to him about his job, and he said, you know, it's 90% chief and 10% marketing, which I think is a good way to think about your role, right? You know, you're is, part of yeah. a leadership group, right? You're part of the, the company's leadership. The function piece is important because you add something, but... The chief thing is why you're in the job. It's true. And how you work together and really getting your teams to work together is almost the entire battle. We just had my first all hands at Waze. And that's what I said to the team. You know, they're looking for big changes. Are you going to reorg? And the reality is, I said, no org solves for teamwork, collaboration, communication and accountability. And when I say accountability, it's being clear on what your role is and the impact that you're responsible for delivering. And if you could do those four things, it doesn't really matter how you organize because you really care about the outcome and you're working together to achieve it. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. We're going to get to ways in a minute, but as we stay with your career path, you have had this interesting ladder or jungle gym. Which of those experiences, maybe it's Vimeo because you've just spoken about how profound that was, but from when you really started your career coming out of school, which one was, which one do you think developed you most into the kind of leader you are today? 
I don't think there's one experience. It's the sum of all your experience that makes you who you are today because it's how you interpret the world and respond to situations. You know, I think some of the best advice I got, parental advice I got from my father was, you know, you can't control what happens in the world, but you can control how you react to it. And the sum of all my experiences from each one of those job paths, even when they were failures or missteps, is how I respond as a leader. And I, it gives me a tremendous amount of empathy for what everyone's going through on the team. So from 1-800-Flowers, I would say I learned the value of saying yes. I volunteered for every single cross-functional program. And some of my peers would be like, why are you doing that? That's not your job. But that's how I learned the value of immersing yourself in a business. And to be a great marketer, you have to understand the entire business, not just marketing. When I left to start my own company, I learned the value of wearing every hat. You you were customer service and you had to be customer centric. You were finance, you were accounting. Uh, you literally learned how to do every part of the business and I became an operator. And then I took some missteps. I took a job in sports tech, which you didn't, you didn't mention in my career path, but that's because I love the founder but I realized that the people isn't always enough. You need to have passion. And I am not a sports person. And I ignored the fact that I don't love sports and I had the dream job for so many people, but it wasn't the dream job for me because it wasn't for what I was great at. And then, as you mentioned, Vimeo was transformative. I learned how to be a really great leader uh, and what managing through change and pivots was like. And I take all of that with me. And I think that makes me really well suited for the role that I just took at Waze. There are a lot of lessons in what you just said, Harris, but I think this whole thing about getting into someone else's shoes, understanding other functions, we're going to talk about your startup at Waze in a minute, but every time I changed careers, I went to see every important cross-functional partner and asked them what success in my job looks like. And that conversation is always a good thing to do. It's all upside. And you have a great sense of your agenda after you finish those conversations. It's kind of that simple. It couldn't be said better in my mind. I agree. Now let's talk about Waze. You've been there just a few months as CMO. What an interesting brand. So what compelled you to join this interesting brand? I love the product. Mm. And as I mentioned before, I've been at places where I didn't understand the product. Uh, this is a company that I've known and used, especially as a native New Yorker, yeah. uh, getting from to your destination is not an easy task in, in the New York metro area. And I've loved this product is the first thing. The second is the community. The one thing, one of the many things I learned at, at Vimeo was the power of an engaged community and an impassioned community and brand love that Waze has is a rarity. So I did not take that for granted. And then the third thing is I felt that what I was great at was what the, there was a need for it at the company. And I think if you could have, uh, people that you want to work with, a passion for the product, and understanding that there's alignment with what you're good at and knowing that and what the company needs, that's a recipe for a really fulfilling job. And I found all of that at Waze. So you brought it up, Harris. What are you great at? I was going to get to that at the end, but let's just do it now. Uh, what, are you, what are you told you're great at? And, is, and do you think that's, you know, we're all told certain things about what our strengths are. And do you think those are what you're good at or is it something else? I think what I'm good at, what I believe I'm good at, and what people have said are complementary. Mm -hmm. So what I believe I'm good at is I love data and inputs and my, I have an ability, you know, it's the one many benefits of ADD is I could, I could process an enormous amount of information and I'm able to see connections that maybe others don't see. And that's really powerful as a marketer because ultimately marketers about driving behaviors that matter, matter for your users, matter for the company and my ability to really process a lot of inputs 
to see those connections has served me really well because I understand our users, their needs, and then ultimately, what are the tactics we use to, to bring value to them? What my recent CEOs that I've worked for have said I, I've served a really important role in the team is my empathy and my ability to be connect the bridges. I work really well with other people. I, I flex my style and understanding of their needs, just like my user needs. And I really care deeply about the outcome. I always wear my operator hat first. I care much less about the marketing than doing the right thing for the company because ultimately those serve the same purpose. You mentioned ADD. I've worked with so many people with ADD. I believe I have a bit of it myself. How have you made that work for you? You have to learn what your strengths are and what your grade are. And it took me a long time in my career to figure out what I was great at and focus on that. So many people look at what they're not great at or where their areas of opportunity are. And they said, if I only fix that, I'll be better. When the reality is that's a small 10% of who you are and what you're great at, someone else is not great at. And if you could lean into that and recognize it, you'll get a 10x return. So just so much of how I compensated for my ADD is understanding what I'm great at. And then I learned I don't do well in the gray. I have to have absolutes. So my team jokes with me, now it's summer, it's hot, I wear the same t-shirt every day. I, when I started, I wear a white, during the colder months, I wear a white button down every day. It's just one less decision that I have to make. Uh, and I do that in lots of areas of my, my life in terms of, I, I cut sugar out because I want it to feel better, but I know if I have one dessert, then it turns into five desserts. So I, I really remove those gray areas because I find it's easier that it's an absolute than trying to answer that question over and over again, because it's easy to fail then. Now, you spoke about your all hands a minute ago. You've been four or five months at Waze. Tell us about your onboarding and what, how you approach this new company that you love the product so much. And, and then take us all the way up to that all hands and tell us a bit about how you approach that and what you learned in that experience with your, your team. Yeah, I immersed myself in the business. First and foremost, I believe that to be a good marketer, you have to understand what your users are, who your users are, and what their needs are. And uh, that I did by studying the product, speaking with our community, understanding our engineering team and what they're building for. And I spent two months listening. Listening was a really important part. I don't think I even focused on what I wanted to do with marketing until the past few weeks because I had to understand what we did, what worked, what didn't work and what the challenges were facing the company. And the reality is Waze is a business that serves mobility and helping people get from place A to place B. And during the pandemic, people stopped going to place B. And so it suffered an immense amount of turmoil and soul searching during this time. And as we're coming out of that and really seeking to find and define our purpose for the future, understanding where you came from is really important and what people were struggling with was really important to me. And I think that's what I spent the first few months doing. And tell us about the all hands meeting. This was your first one. So that's kind of a big deal. It was my first pure marketing all hands. We had already come together for an offsite, which was a tremendous gift, right? No one had traveled for two and a half years. Mm -hmm. So I was actually the first time I was an even playing field. People hadn't met each other. <laughs> so many people joined over the last two years. They had never met each other. So it was this amazing moment that we came together to discuss some of what we thought the future was. And now this was my first moment uh, two days ago to really distill and share back with, with our team what I had learned over the last two and a half months. And what I shared was how incredibly passionate I am about the team and the company and where we're heading and how much belief I have in what we're doing and how much opportunity I see in who we are today 
because that's what our customers love us for. They don't know what we're going to do tomorrow. They love us for what the value we bring to them today. And if we could just focus on that and meet them in their moment of need, the rest will become very clear. And I think that relieved a lot of anxiety for the team. They're always worried about the change that's going to mm -hmm. happen versus the impact that we could have right now. What's next is important, but what's now is equally important. Yeah. Did you share, uh, you shared your learning and your experience of the, of the four months. Did you, did you give them an indication of how you were going to approach the role, where you were going to focus, spend your time, what, what your emerging priorities were? I did. And I shared two guiding principles that were really important to me for how we would make decisions and prioritization. The reality is it took me a while to get up to speed. It's now almost August 1st and there's five months left in the year. So what we could actually do is probably less than what we think we could do. So what mm -hmm. we choose to do will be really important. And the way we will prioritize what we choose to do will, can it deliver in period impact? Is this something that will impact our business today? Or is this something that will inform a strategic scalable priority for next year? And both those things are really important because we're gonna be making decisions going into our planning process. And I wanna be informed, as I mentioned before, I love inputs and data is good inputs and real world data of having tried stuff helps us make those decisions. So we're going to be saying no to things that people had worked on or planned for months, but because it's better to focus on the few bigger impactful things than it is to keep doing things because there was momentum there. And that could be really hard for the team. But I think when making and facing tough decisions, if you could be clear on what you're doing and why you're doing it, people are generally accepting of that. A lot of leaders miss the why. They just tell you the what. And I think the why is really important. Almost every CMO I talk to is working on their organizational capabilities because it's shifting and it's, uh, it's always dynamic. It's especially dynamic now. As you think about ways and your team and what you've learned, what do you think are the capabilities you really need to double down on? I mean, we talked about strengths a minute ago when it comes to leadership. And which ones do you think are going to be important for where the company's going? It starts with the user. Everything that we do has to start with the user and meeting them in their moment of need. And one of the challenging things I'm finding as a marketer is the ways experience and funnel is quite different than any other business I've been at. If you think about traditional marketing, whether you're in a mobile app marketing, you reach people in these moments when they're searching. So they could be on their couch, they could be on Instagram, or they could be on YouTube watching a video and you serve them an ad and you get them to install your app and that's great. You could target the right user. But the number one reason people don't use Waze is because they forget they have Waze. And that's true of a lot mm -hmm. of customer products that people have. You could find the right person, get them to install their app. But if you don't meet them in the moment of need, that's a tough funnel. So we're really thinking about what are the moments of needs our user has? Traffic, when they need to find inexpensive gas or the cheapest gas, when they need to find parking. Uh, how do they avoid accidents? When do they know where speed traps are or traffic cams? These are the things that really disrupt their commute and disrupt their joy. And if we can meet them in those moments of needs and find ways to amplify that, that's when I believe we'll have the most success. And in full transparency, we don't have that fully figured out yet, but we have really good signals that I'm very excited for. Super. Your CEO also is new. She started, I don't know, six months before you or so. And how have you established the relationship with Nea and What's, what's been her advice to you as you've onboarded? I think we've established a quick relationship really fast, and it's a deep relationship because ultimately we have a shared accountability to, to serve our users' needs. And 
drive growth and engagement for those users. So uh, when you're aligned with the CEO, I also benefit from someone who early in her career was in marketing. That's been very fortunate to me. My last CEO also came up through marketing. So when you have a CEO that understands the dynamics of marketing, what it can do and what it can't do, there's this immediate empathy for each other. And when you have shared outcomes that you align on, you feel like you're in the trenches together. We don't have everything figured out. There's still a lot we have to figure out, but I'm confident that together with the shared objective that we can figure it out together. And her first advice to me was to listen, which I was already prepared to do. So yeah. she didn't come in and say, solve everything today. She yeah. said, listen, understand what the problems are. I'd love your perspective on those problems. That's why we hired you to bring your unique perspective, but you need to listen to understand them first. What's the kind of culture you're all creating there? Because it seems to be from everything you're saying, a pretty fun place to work, pretty energetic place to work. So what is the culture that is ways and how are you trying to build on that? Fun and transparency. Mm -hmm. So the fun part is we are uniquely ways. Uh, that's why people love us. They love that we don't take ourselves too seriously, but we give them serious real-time information that has a positive impact on the day. And transparency is the culture of, of the leadership that we're really trying to build. As I mentioned, there's been lots of stops and starts and different uh, paths that the company has taken. That's true of any company that's been around for you know 13 years. But we have to be transparent of what we're doing, why we're doing it, and the challenges we face so that collectively we could work together to solve them. And we have a tremendously talented team of individuals. I have been so thrilled to get to know everyone, not just in marketing, but in sales and engineering and product, in our community and support, in our support functions. Everyone cares deeply about the product. They came to Waze for the same reason that I came to Waze. They love the product. And when you have people that are passionate about what you're doing and the community you serve, that's a great place to be. And it doesn't matter how tough the challenges you face because you care about the product you work mm -hmm. for. And that's tremendous. Yeah. Now you're at Vimeo for five years as CMO, which we've talked about. How is this remit and the scope of a CMO job similar and different to Vimeo's? Similar in that it's got a huge loyal brand and fan base and a community. They're both community-driven platforms and also similar inflection points. I came in to Vimeo and I'm coming to ways at, at a point when we're defining our future and a future that might look different from where we came from or evolved. And that's managing change. So I think having a community that loves you and a brand awareness that's probably above the size of your company comes with a tremendous amount of responsibility because you want to serve that community and building for what they need today, but what they don't even know they need in the future is also an amount of responsibility that I'm excited to take on. And I think having had that experience at Vimeo where we defined that and went through a pivot and evolved the company, it's really exciting to be solving similar problems, but for a different community. What have you learned about leading change, leading transformation? Because you're right. I mean, our jobs as CMOs are is to listen, to understand today's users, but prepare the company for the future. And and too many CMOs don't spend enough time on the latter part of that. And when you're preparing a company for your future, there's always some amount of transformation involved. So what are your what works for you, Harris, as a leader when you're leading significant change in an organization? Change is hard, but it's immensely rewarding when done right. And I th on the hard part, it's important to be acknowledged that it's hard. I think showing up as a leader and doing the work with your team and navigating the change 
is half the battle. They want to know that you're in this with them, that you're not throwing the change on them to figure out that you're there together side by side. And when you do that and you get it right, it's immensely rewarding because you found this need and you met a need for your community and they immediately get it. And that value you give to them is unlike anything else I've, I've found in other areas. You know, I've scaled businesses. I've worked in e-commerce, as you mentioned. I've sold flowers and gift mm-hmm. baskets, cookies, photo books. Uh, you have to tap into emotion there, but eventually it's about a transaction. But when you navigate a community of 150 million people that use your product every month and they love your product, but you want to evolve it and give them more, show them what the future could be, that's not easy because you want to get it right. But when you do get it right, it's great. Now, you walked into this great job with this product you love, and you walked right into a partnership with Tour de France, which I assume was negotiated before you were there. No? It was not. It was not? Okay. Well, that's, that's, that's even a better story. So tell us about that, because that certainly broke through. And what a great event. I mean, it's, it's just one of the great events of the summer, maybe the great event of the summer, along with the Olympics every four years and maybe Wimbledon. So good for you, but tell us about it. It might have been week two that the team presented to me uh, and they came with the, the idea. They had already spoken. They had worked with the Tour de France. So, yes, it was mostly negotiated, but it was my first real insight into what ways could be and where we could show up. It was this perfect intersection of this traffic inducing event globally known. It had over 4000 miles of of 4,000 kilometers of road closures, by the way, different this year than they were last year because the course changes every year. And that has an immense impact on the community that they operate in, that they love. It's across, I think, three or four different countries, even though it's a Tour de France. Mm -hmm. And we have a a community of users that both want to show up and view the event and a whole probably bigger community that wants to avoid the disruption that that event caused. And if you think about all those things, I mean, I can't think of something that's better suited for ways and the value that we bring. So we were able to work with the Tour de France and I really pushed the team. It came initially as a sponsorship and a partnership and we pushed the team and said, how do we make this a moment? How do we have full surround sound? And it went from being this pretty obvious partnership and sponsorship to something that we were able to lean into and really serve all five areas of importance that the company was focused on, which going into it is like, We have a core belief that first and foremost, we want to deliver an extraordinary product. We want to have a positive impact on our world is the second one. And we want to drive high quality user growth. When we think about our partners that we work with, we always want to have a win-win scenario. One where it it gives us a, a business, so we have to generate revenue. It's an opportunity for us to generate revenue, but also serve value to our users so they're not at odds. And then we care about our people, the people at ways that are building it. And we were able to take what started as a sponsorship for a traffic event that made sense for a traffic app into this 360 cohesive campaign where we we did a partnership with Skoda and changed car and they're the sponsor of the Tour de France. We, we showed up on all over the Tour de France website of how do people get to the event. It was the first time they were able to guide people to parking destinations where they wanted them and control the flow of traffic. We helped our community avoid the disruption and we did a, a tour de ways internally where we had an internal competition and a video competition. And we sent one employee to the Tour de France and they got to ride in the safety vehicle and, and share content back with the employees and everyone was there. And it really became this exciting moment in a market that knows and loves us. France is a huge market for us where we have 
deep love and brand loyalty. And they love that we did this because, as you said, the Tour de France is uh, an event that has immense country pride for them. So it really was this 360 campaign that was a win-win that started from this universal truth that we could add value, but it ended up being so much more. Sounds fantastic. How do you know how, how do you know it was a win this year for you? What kind of KPIs do you look at? There's a lot of energy generated internally and, and externally, but I assume you'll do it again next year. You sound like you're very positive on it, but what kinds of things do you look at? So it came together very quickly. We look at revenue. Did it what did it work mm-hmm. for our partners? Did they find value in it? We look at did our employee care did they increase morale, which was one of the, the goals for us. Did it deliver product value? Did we get positive user feedback? Did did it work? Did people get where they were going or avoid where they're going? So those usage KPIs. And then ultimately, as marketers, we're responsible for growth. Did it drive, and growth is defined in growth in users, growth in frequency, engagement. That last area is really important to me. And in full transparency, we don't know the outcome yet. It's a little too soon to tell. But I've said to the team, whether it drove growth or didn't drive growth, we will be transparent because it's important to learn so that when we do it next year, we could be better and figure out the things that we got right and lean into them and adjust the things that we got wrong because no one gets everything right. Now, you, of course, have been owned by Google, right? I think since 2013. And I know you're still new at Waze, but it's always interesting with acquisitions, mergers, what one learns from the other. And that always happens. It's always a two-way street. I was in in the middle of my tenure as CMO at PNG, we bought Gillette. It's a very big acquisition. We learned a shitload from them and vice versa. And we went in with that attitude, by the way. They do things better than us in some areas. We do things better than them in others. Let's put it together and make both of us a better company. So I know you're new. Maybe it, it's an unfair question, but what's at least the folklore about what Google has learned from Waze and vice versa? We both learned is the answer, as you had said. Google has learned the power of community, and I think they recognize, and at least it's been conveyed to me, why does Waze exist? I saw, you know, when I was doing research, when Waze was bought, everyone said, oh, they're just going to roll it into Google Maps. That is not their intention. That's not the intention as high up as Sundar, who shares with us how much he values the community and what's unique about Waze and the real-time insights that we offer the world. Getting to your destination is a human problem. (laughs) And we think it requires a human solution. And it's why when we think about the products we build and the services that we offer, we don't build them for the cars, we build them for the people who drive the cars. And that's uniquely ways. And it's not easily replicated. And that's why we exist in the world. What we learned from Google is, I don't think there's a better company out there that knows about scaling technology and how to innovate and how to think about the long-term horizon. And when you're under this umbrella and the safety of Alphabet, it lets us take risks. It lets us really think about what do our users need and what do they need in the long-term? And we build for the future of transportation. And that's not just from getting from point A to point B. That's about making the roads a safer place to be. That's about helping people not only report accidents, but avoid them. I just saw this amazing study from Portugal, where they were in their command center and they had seen, they were showing how they have traffic cams and everywhere. And a reporter was in there who was a Waze user. And they noticed that they had gotten an app notification about an accident faster than someone had called the equivalent of 911. 
And they looked into that and they took that insight and they developed, they took our API and they developed an emergency response system that now on average, they dispatch emergency vehicles seven minutes faster than they were prior. And that's all from humans being able to report an accident faster than it takes from someone who's experienced accident to call 911. And when you see that innovation coming from our community and through our partnerships with cities, that's when you know you have something special. And that's a bigger impact in the world than just getting to your destination. We're actually, you know, go as far as saving lives because every minute there matters. Well, we're getting into the space of brand purpose now. And I know you from what I've seen, heard, and read about you, that you're a big believer in purpose as a driver of culture and growth. And it's a, and it's a big reason you came to this company. So I'd like you to talk a little bit more about that purpose, how you talk about it, why it's relevant for you personally, and how this comes to life within ways and how people work day in and day out. It starts with the user, as I've said numerous times today. It's going to be our headline for this podcast, by the way. You made our job easier. (laughs) It starts with the user. (laughs) We care immensely about understanding what our community needs and building products to solve problems that they don't even know they need. And yes, we make navigating traffic easier. We also make avoiding getting a red light camera ticket easier. We let you know where there's potholes and accidents and avoid the trials and tribulations of what's on the road ahead. But when we do that really well and we drive engagement with our community, there's this broader impact in the world that we could have that speaks to some of the things I just shared. We can make the roads actually safer. We could let you know when there's speed limit changes or when you're approaching an intersection that we know is a dangerous intersection because 100 people have reported accidents over the last six months. And that awareness, that real-time information from humans, drivers helping other drivers, is what makes us different. It helps you anticipate what's on the road ahead, which is the first step to avoiding the accidents that so many people report. And I think that's a really powerful message that we could make every drive smarter and safer. And that's a big responsibility to play in the world. It's enormous. How do you activate that throughout your culture? It feels like you hire for that. You talk about it, you reward it, but give us a bit more of the insights and and tips and techniques you use to be sure that this uh, bedrock of your company is understood by everyone and and they and they feel that it's theirs. It's not the company's, it's theirs. It's about stories. And I don't have to tell this to you, but so much of marketing is about storytelling. It's what brings the human emotion to what we do, whether that's trying to reach your customers and have let them understand you have empathy for them or have your employees have empathy for the product they're building. And when we could share stories like I just did about Portugal and accident reports and city response times and how we save people time so they made it to work on time. That ties the work they do, which might not be immediately paired. Like when you build a banner ad as a marketer or you fix an ETA routing so people, it's 10% more accurate. That's numbers, right? Click rates and click-through rates and 10% of, oh, we saved everyone on average a minute faster. It's numbers in a spreadsheet, which are really hard to feel. And if when you want to get people impassioned, our CEO shared something that was so great. And she said, purpose is about why people get up in the morning and strategy is about what we do day in and day out to deliver on that purpose. Mm -hmm. And 
when we could tell compelling stories about the impact our product has on the world, that gets people up in the morning. Uh, and I think we've done a really good job of sharing those stories. What's your toughest challenge at Waze in bringing that purpose to life day in and day out? The future's far off. So you build for the future, but you have to solve for now. And you have to balance the two, right? You have to always meet your customers in their moment of need, which is a very now problem. But you have to think about what the problems of the future are. And that's in-car, electric vehicles, autonomous driving, cities and traffic laws. And New York City has congestion pricing. These are problems of the future that our users not thinking about today. So we have to build to solve for them in the future, but meet them in their moment of need today. And that's not always easy. Yeah. There's another tension in marketing, which I've heard you talk about, and that is this uh, tension between brand and performance marketing. I don't love those terms, and I don't love the fact that we talk about tension between them. But I've heard you speak on this topic, and I just loved a quote you had, and it was a very simple one. The best campaigns can accomplish both. I'd like you to Go a little deeper on that. How do you ensure that in your job at Waze, that everything you do is both brand and performance marketing, and it's not some sort of trade-off or tension in the company? Everything we do is brand. Whether you intend it to be or don't intend it yeah, to be, that's right. it's representative of your brand. And that's from a customer interaction on Twitter to a display ad to a search ad to someone giving word of mouth to their friend that ways either helped them or hurt them. That's all collectively your brand. Some of it you could control and some of it you can't. So it's really important to control the things that you can. And I learned that quote by failing. Uh, we've done campaigns that were great marketing campaigns, but didn't meet our users in their moment of need. At Vimeo, we did a campaign that had a huge out-of-home element to it. But the vast majority is that's a mass media and the number of users that needed video is a small segment. So the efficiency of putting billboards up everywhere wasn't great and we didn't get the return that we wanted to. And that really gave me the insight of it doesn't have to be brand or performance. It didn't have to be search marketing and billboards. We could find the mediums that serve both, right? You could get ads that people click on and ads, those same ads that people view but don't click on and they're serving a purpose and you can optimize it for the return that you want to do. But to go back to your simple question, it all starts with what you're trying to achieve in the world. And I've been very clear since I started at Waze that we have to answer three questions before we do anything and before I will approve anything. And that is, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? And what does success look like? And under that is how will we measure that by when? Because when you can answer all those, you're very clear-eyed of what you're trying to do. And some of it might be awareness and, and recognition of a, a new feature. Some of it might be app installs. What success looks like, depending on your answer to that, dictates the tactics that you use and enables you to do both brand and performance because you recognize what success and performance looks like. So if I came into your, I don't know, your office when you're in the office or in one of your Zoom meetings or Teams meetings, and I ask, what does Harris ask for in a meeting? They would tell me those four things. I hope so. I start <laughs> every meeting with it. I establish marketing tenets, and those that's the first one. We deliver impact, and the way we define impact is by answering those three questions. It's something that I want us to do and lead throughout the company 
so that marketing at a lot of companies, oh, they do those, those fun mm-hmm. ad campaigns. No, we deliver impact. And we're able to define impact clearly by answering what we're doing, why we do it, and what success looks like. That's basically the way that P&G has been successful for 180 years, honestly. I didn't even know that. See, I'm, they, I, that, I it's, go- you know, the famous one-page memo, they talk about a lot of P&G. It's a way of thinking, and it's, it's not that dissimilar to what you just went through. And P&G sort of just makes everyone write that down so, and share it with everyone so they can debate that before they get into tactics. It's so important. It's so easy to do the what and then look back and say, did, well, what did it deliver? Did, was it good at this or good at that? But that's not success, even if it was positive, even if it drove lots of users. If your intention was right, to drive else. signups and it drove something else and it yep. was not successful. Yeah. We should learn why it did the thing it did. Yeah. Yep. But you have to define success first. Yeah. All right, Harris, let's move to the creative brief. And my first question is, we talked about your strength and how you leverage that. Is there a trait or competency you're working on? We did talk about we work, we try to fix our weaknesses maybe too much, but is there something that you are personally signed up trying to sharpen as a skill or characteristic? For me, it's about accountability and being truthful to yourself. And that's the hardest thing, I think. Uh, holding yourself accountable when it works is quite easy. Holding yourself accountable when it doesn't work and owning that and owning it publicly is really important specifically as a leader. And I always want to do that. I've told my team that I want us to do that, but it's not always easy. You go into things with good intentions. Everyone works just as hard on a program that is successful as the one that fails. Uh, But when it fails, it stings and it's not easy to own up to it failing. But I think as a leader, it's really important to do that because it lets everyone else in the company know that it's okay to fail. And very few things are grand slams. It's Success is built on lots of little wins, but also exponentially more failures. And if you don't publicly take accountability for the things that don't work, people don't realize that there's failures behind the wins. You talked earlier in the podcast about the power of the startup experience that you had and how you had a soft landing. Do you think you have another startup in you, Harris, sometime in your career? No. (laughs) (laughs) I, I don't in the traditional sense. I, that's what I love about Waze. It's a company that's 13 years old, but in very many ways, it's a startup within mm-hmm. Google. They give us the freedom to push the limits as a startup would do. They give us the flexibility to operate as a separately owned company. But the reality is that I've gotten older, and this is being honest, my risk profile has changed. When mm-hmm. I started my last profile, I was dating my now wife. I had no kids. And people should realize startups are risks. And I give entrepreneurs an enormous amount of credit. There is no riskier thing than leaving the security of a job that you do really well, that pays you well, and going off into the unknown because you have this belief in the world. So I'll revise my answer. Today it's no, because I don't have anything that's a strong enough belief that would cause me to leave what I am great at and I am passionate about. Maybe one day in the future there will be, but today there's been nothing that I had that much conviction to leave what I feel like I'm great at. You're an honest person, Harris. And you're also at a stage in your life. I get it. I've been there. I get it. So who has been the most influential business mentor in your life? Uh, I've had a lot of influential. So I don't know that I could call it one. The first influence has been my father, who was always an entrepreneur. Uh, I give him an enormous amount of credit because growing up, 
I never felt as a child the stress of him having a business that was maybe on the brink of success or failure or was in debt. And there were, you know, in hindsight, speaking with him older in life, there were times when he didn't know how they were going to pay the bills. And fortunately for our family, it worked out, but I never felt that. So I got to see the hard work of an entrepreneur build a business and the stress it took. It came at the sacrifice of family at times of him working long hours, but he did it for our family. So he was my first influence. What was his line of work? What was the entrepreneur idea? He was a printer uh, Mm. by trade. So like traditional printing, but he saw the future with the first Macintosh of desktop publishing. They had at one point the largest Apple retailer in the Northeast before Apple started giving it out as a commodity and places like mm-hmm. CompuServe undercut him. But he also had the first digital printing press. So he's always ahead and he took variable data printing and took what's once really expensive to do uh, and did one-to-one marketing in direct response and print using wow. digital media. So he's always at the cutting edge and love technology and, you know, uh, always had the coolest gadgets that I learned for. And that probably gave me my, my thirst for technology and thinking about mm-hmm. the future. Some of the best lessons I've learned, though, are what not to do as, as a leader. And I think of, without mentioning any names, one, one boss I had that was a, a burn the village, lead by fear, yell at people kind of leader. And quite frankly, as hard as I was working, made me feel like shit. And I learned I never want to make people feel bad about themselves. And one of the other tenets I established at, at, at Waze is assume positive intent. People are working hard because they want to do good work. No one goes into it to offend you or do something nefarious. They might not get it right and they might offend you, but that wasn't their intention. And if you could focus on what we want to accomplish, you could inspire people to work just as hard as you. And I don't believe you need to do that by fear or threatening people or cursing at them. Um, And that might have been my most important lesson as a leader, what not to do. versus what to do. Because what to do is a summation of, like I said, my entire Mm -hmm. career. What not to do had laid a much bigger impression on me and my career and a very dark period uh, of, I would say, my professional career. Who's been the most inspiring person in your life? My wife. And that's an easy one for me. She has always seen the person I could be before I, I did and believed in what I could achieve before I did. And she met me when I had no money, actually, it was probably negative money starting gift back. And I was a year in and she paid for a lot of our dates uh, and supported me. And every time I got one of those great jobs that you said was a ladder in my career, and I was like, oh, I've reached the pinnacle. She said, you're just getting started. And when I doubted myself, which imposter syndrome is real for every leader, I think Mm -hmm. some of the best leaders because it drives you. uh, She never had doubt in me and was always there supporting me in dark periods, in high periods, and having someone to go through life with that could support you equally when there's something to celebrate, but also when you feel like you failed miserably and they're behind you just as much in both of those scenarios is incredibly powerful for me as someone that's had to go through tough times and great times. I have a wife just like that, Harris, and I met her when I had no money too, so (laughs) we can relate. By the way, what does your wife think about you in this current role? She loves it. Yeah, I bet. She loves it because she sees me happy. Yeah. She, we talked about the stress of going public. It's, it's not easy on a spouse. When you're going through that, they're going through it and not in direct ways. Uh, 
but supporting the family. We have two kids. Uh, and to be part of another brand that I'm passionate about and see how happy I am and how much excitement I have when I talk about it, she loves it. And she, unlike me, has zero sense of direction. So she also has a love, a love of the product and has saved her numerous times. If I just That's dropped funny. her in the middle of nowhere, she will never get home. That's so funny. Have I, have, I have a terrible sense of direction and my wife's really good. So another reason we're a great couple. But you really bail me out all the time. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for that. And thank you, Harris, for this interview. I mean, it was so good on so many levels, full of lessons, full of humanity, and by the way, I think a great ad for Waze, that's not why we do this, but you talk about it so authentically and so persuasively that, um, it, you know, it's, you're right. Sometimes I don't use it because I don't think about it. That's stupid. It's a good insight. You can do a lot with that. My success will be defined in, you know, when I got to Waze, people said, we want to make Waze a daily habit. And mm -hmm. I believe I want to make Waze every time you get in the car. Yeah. You think yep. of Waze because it helps you yep. not just get to where you're going but be safer and give you real insights on the road and navigate what's ahead, which is never unknown. Even if you're going to the bagel shop down the street, you don't know when there's an accident ahead of you. So if we could really instill that value five years from now, I will consider myself having succeeded. That's a good remit. It's good success criteria. Harris, thank you. You've been very generous. I wish you a wonderful weekend. Say hello to your wife for me and tell her we have a lot in common. I will. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate you taking the time to hear me and listen to me. That was my conversation with Harris Bieber. Three takeaways from this rich conversation for your business brand and life. The first one, you know this is coming. It all starts with the users. Harris must have said that 10 times in this podcast, but it's such a fundamental belief. Everything needs to start with your users, your consumers, your customers. Do you understand them? Do you bring empathy to them? Do you talk about them? Do you reward getting out to see them, visit them, to learn about them? It all starts with the users. Second takeaway, understand your partners and other functions. I asked Harris how he onboarded. He said, I spent two months listening, visiting the other functions and understanding their work in the details so I could be a better marketer. That is so powerful. Third takeaway, be clear on who you are. Harris is a very self-aware leader. When he goes into a meeting, people know what to expect. What are we doing? Why are we doing it? What does success look like? How do we measure it? That's how he approaches every meeting with his team when they come to him with an idea. It teaches your team to be disciplined, to think strategy first, and Harris is really, really consistent on this. And a bonus takeaway, I love this one. One of Harris's lessons in life is you can't control what happens, but you can control your reaction to what happens. That is so powerful and so deep we all need to think a lot more about bringing that to life in our lives. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.